Well, good morning. My name is Jimmy Funches. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks Church. It's great to see you all here this morning. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37 this morning. Whenever you read the Gospels, one important thing that you should be looking out for is location. Where is the action taking place? The Gospel of Mark began with Jesus' ministry in a place called Galilee, sort of up north in Palestine and Israel, near the Sea of Galilee. And so the first half of the Gospel of Mark is in Galilee. But then at the end of Mark chapter 8, Mark begins to do something with location. He says that Jesus begins to travel south. Now the interesting thing about Israel geography, if maybe there is something interesting about Israel geography, is that uh, back in the day they didn't have north, south, east, west maps like we would conceive of them. Uh, And so they would really think about topography. So while Jesus would have been traveling south to Jerusalem, he would be going up in elevation to get to Jerusalem. So Often in the Gospels, whether it's Mark or one of the others, you will hear about how Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, despite the fact that he's moving south, he's going up in elevation to Jerusalem. And what the Gospel authors do with location and geography is that they sort of build suspense. That's what Mark is doing whenever he talks about the location of where Jesus is, because ultimately Jesus is going somewhere. When we talk about location, he's going from Galilee down south to Jerusalem, but he's going up to Jerusalem really for a purpose, for a specific end. Of course, we know that he would go to Jerusalem to face the cross. Even in the geography of Mark, we see the gospel. We see that Jesus had a purpose, and we see that even today. So, Without further ado, let's go ahead and read, beginning in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. We'll go ahead and just read from 30 to 37. God's Word says this, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, headed south. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he, Jesus, sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. If you were to come over to my house one morning this week, you would likely find my beautiful daughter, Olivia, doing a puzzle. She loves puzzles. 
And unlike her father, she's actually super good at puzzles. Now, Olivia is three years old. She can barely even talk, but she sure does love a good puzzle. But the crazy thing about Olivia is that whenever you watch her do the puzzle, she doesn't really ever look at the box. You know how there's a picture on the box that you can kind of look at and say, okay, this is what the whole picture looks like. So I can sort of tell this piece is going to go in this general area. Whenever I sit down to do a puzzle with Olivia, I have the box right next to me, and I'm trying to make sense of everything. I'm using it as a reference. And meanwhile, she's over there on the other side of the table just putting things together one after the uh, the other, and honestly kind of embarrassing me. I'm 31 years old. I feel like I'm a pretty smart guy, but my three-year-old daughter is absolutely schooling me when it comes to doing a simple puzzle. But she just has a knack for finding pieces that fit together. Before you know it, she, at the age of three, has completed a 200-piece puzzle all by herself with very little help from me. She's probably teaching me more than I'm teaching her. It, It really is something that's incredible. Well, this passage that we see in Mark was really honestly somewhat of a puzzle to me for most of the week. I think it kind of seems simple enough. Really, there's two parts. Jesus foretells of the passion that would be to come. And then after that, he has this discussion with his disciples about what it means to be great. There are two scenes. They seem straightforward. But the thing that I kept on coming back to throughout the week as I studied was, how did these two passages fit together? Should they be sort of two different sermons? Because the first part really is very straightforward. Jesus is foretelling of his death, burial, and resurrection. And then this second part, we see that they go to a completely different place. And then Jesus talks and disciples his disciples about what it means to be truly great. And I just kept thinking to myself, I don't know how these things fit together. In fact, if you read commentaries, there are many scholars who would say the same. They say that Mark chapter 9 in particular about halfway through through the rest of the chapter, is one of the more difficult chapters to sort of make sense of structurally. Some of the passages sort of seem like they aren't related to one another. That Mark maybe just threw them in there. But of course we know that not only was Mark the author who was thinking and strategically putting this together, but he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. These stories are next to each other for a reason. And as I studied this passage all week, the, pas- the, the pieces of this passage's puzzle began to be pieced together. And little by little, I began to catch a glimpse of the entire picture. Toward the end of the week, I began to almost see the reference picture on the box. And that's what I hope that each of you will experience this morning. My hope for us is that as we come to this passage, we're going to see the pieces sort of come together slowly but surely, in such a way that you begin to take a step back and look at the entire puzzle and see that there's a big picture, and Mark is doing something here. And we're going to begin putting these pieces together by looking at the two scenes of this passage. If we want to sort of break this down, if you were to maybe make an outline, you're going to have those two scenes. So really there's two points of the sermon. I'll give that away, right? And then within each scene... There's sort of two parts of the scene. And then with each of the two parts, there's two parts of that. A lot of twos today. We're going to look at these things in order here. So let's begin by looking at the first scene in verses 30 through 32. We see 
Jesus speak about his death and resurrection now for a second time. Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection for a second time here in these first couple of verses. Now, this might seem like deja vu to you to see Jesus predicting his death and resurrection because it was just one chapter ago that Jesus predicted his death, burial, and resurrection for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark. You see that in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. If you missed that week of Terry preaching, you can go back to our YouTube channel and you can watch that sermon. But it wasn't that long ago that Terry Lee was preaching on basically the same exact thing. Jesus said then that he would die, that he would rise from the dead. And then do you remember what happened? This, this message sort of shocked the disciples. Jesus told them this beautiful truth that he was going to give his life for them and be raised to life. And how does, what does Peter say? Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. How dare you say, Jesus, don't say that. And Jesus looks Peter in the eye and he says, get behind me, Satan. That was shocking. Shocking for Jesus to say something like that. And so just a a few verses later, we come to this passage. And here Jesus is again predicting his own death. The Son of Man will be killed. He will be raised after three days' time. And here, there are two things to consider, all right? We're going to consider Jesus' announcement and the disciples' reaction. You following with me here? So let's look. Jesus announces that he will be killed, that he'll be buried, and that he'll rise again three days later. In Mark chapter 8, there's not actually any record of Jesus' words. It just says that he he was teaching his disciples that he would suffer many things, that he would be killed, that he would be raised to life. But here in the following chapter, Mark records the words of Jesus explaining the very same thing. Look in verses 30 and 31. It says that he would be delivered into the hands of men and killed, but then after three days' time, he would be raised to life. Now, there's two things that we should look at in Jesus's announcement. Okay, I know we're going deeper here through the outline, but stick with me. When we look at what Jesus says here, there's two things we should take note of. The first is the play on words that Mark gives us here. Do you see that? In the first part, we see Mark write, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Man, men, same, same word there in the original text as well. The Son of Man. Now, Jesus has a lot of titles. Why would Mark use this one? Mark uses this title... Because he wants to sort of give a play on words. The Son of Man. That that title goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. That this Son of Man is going to be the Messiah. He's going to make everything better. He's going to make all things new. This Son of Man, the expectation would be that he's going to come and rule. He's going to destroy. He's going to do everything, right? No, the Son of Man will be handed over into the hands of men. That, that should amaze us. If we take a second to think about that, we should be amazed by that. The Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, the Word who took on flesh and dwelt among us, the one who is not only present, but who is also active in creation, breathing everything into existence, the one who created you and me, the one who 
has everything, has all sovereignty over all of our movements, over our being, that Son of Man will be delivered over into the hands of men. The Son of Man will be given over to the very creatures that He created. Let me ask you, does that truth just make you marvel? There's a lot of sensational things in our world today that will make us marvel and be shocked. But does that truth make you marvel this morning? That Jesus created us, but that he would be delivered over into our hands to be put to death. In just a few weeks in Mark chapter 12, we're going to read the parable of the wicked tenants. In that parable, Jesus paints this picture of this exact idea. There's an owner of the vineyard, and he leases out the vineyard to these tenants, but the tenants are wicked. So when harvest time comes, the owner of the vineyard sends some messengers to collect on the harvest. But the tenants, because they're wicked, they beat these messengers up and send them back. They want to keep everything for themselves. They think that they're the owners of the vineyard. And then the owner of the vineyard says, you know what, they'll listen to me if I send my son. So the owner of the vineyard sends his son to these wicked tenants. And they don't just beat up the son, no, they kill the son. That story, just even as a parable, shocks us. But does it shock us that that actually happened with the second person of the Trinity? This shocking reality that Mark hints at here in Mark 9 is this, is that God sent his only son into the world to bring salvation, to bring restoration to all things. And yet because of our sin, we see Jesus as the enemy rather than the Savior that he truly is. This morning I wonder, do you see Jesus as a Savior? If you're here this morning, let me implore you. Do you see Jesus as a Savior? Do you know him as Savior? Or is Jesus more of an inconvenience See, something in life that we really don't want to be sort of thrown off by. He's just sort of an inconvenience to us. He disrupts our life. He doesn't save us. In this prediction of Jesus' death, we see this announcement and this crazy idea that the Son of Man will be given over into the hands of men. This play on words here. But we also see a second thing if we look closely. Now, I do want to say here... The second thing that we're going to see, if we look closely, does require a little bit of a grammar lesson. Now, I know that when I say that, many of you are tempted to check out. Uh, You say, I haven't had to worry about grammar in many years, and I don't want to worry about it right now. But before you fall prey to the temptation to fall asleep at the mere mention of grammar, let me just ask you, stick with me. Because the beautiful thing about the Bible is that even in the grammar, we can catch a glimpse of the gospel. In verse 31, there's a verb there, going to be delivered. Do you see it? Look down in verse 31, going to be delivered. This is what's called a passive verb. A passive verb is a verb where the action of the verb is happening to the subject. A normal active verb is just the dog ate the food. The dog was the one that was doing the action of the verb. A passive verb is when the action of the verb is happening to the subject. So, the song was sung, right? The house was painted. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. You see how it's a passive verb. Now, there's really 
couple different ways that you can interpret a passive verb. You can, you can look for the, the one who is doing the action. Who is the one who is delivering over the Son of Man? Who's the one who's doing the action of this passive verb? And really, there's two ways to think about it. You could, it could be Judas, right? Is Judas the one who's going to be delivering over the Son of Man? Well, in a sense, he is, but it doesn't make much sense to say that this man is going to deliver over the Son of Man into the hands of men. So that, that interpretation doesn't really make sense. But what does make sense is the other way that you can take this passive verb. And it is what is called in theological terms a divine passive. A divine passive. A divine passive is when God is the author of the verb's action. And that's the case here. That the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But who's doing the delivering? When we take this as a divine passive, we can read it like this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered by God the Father over into the hands of men. This interpretation fits really well here. And at the end of this short grammar lesson, we can see that this verb, going to be handed over, is a divine passive. Now, I know that's a lot. I know that this grammatical observation might not blow everyone's mind, but let me tell you, that grammar has gospel implications. Let me show them to you. You see, Jesus wasn't just sort of taken aback by all of this. When, When we see this divine passive, we actually see the gospel. Jesus was not surprised by his betrayal. You see, Jesus was not taken off guard in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus wasn't shocked whenever Judas walked up to him in the garden and kissed him on the cheek, showing the Roman soldiers who they were to arrest. That didn't shock Jesus. Why? Because this is a divine passive verb. This verb tells us that God in eternity past and throughout the rest of time planned this. That in conjunction with the Son, there was a plan That Jesus would be handed over, that he would be delivered into the hands of men, into the very creatures that he he created. Why? So that we could be rescued. You see, Jesus understood his assignment. Jesus was aware of his purpose. The Trinitarian God was active in the plan of salvation, planning and bringing to fruition the greatest story of grace that the world would ever know. In eternity past, God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit would ordain that it would be the Son who would one day take on flesh and he would be called Jesus. He knew that the plan was for him to be delivered over into the very hands of those that he created. That his purpose would be to redeem and to rescue what was once thought to be lost forever. Jesus would give hope to the hopeless, that he would love the unlovable. He would bring deliverance. Do you see that in the sex? He would bring deliverance to his children by his own deliverance over into the hands of his children. You see, church, this divine passive verb, this one little word, tells us just how much the Father loves us. 
this divine passive, shows us the lengths that our triune God would go to to save us, to rescue us, to snatch us back from the pit of hell because he set his love and his affection on us. He cares for you this morning. In eternity past, God was thinking about you in this moment. God is consciously loving you even now just as he did before you even existed, before this world existed. This was always the plan, that God would rescue us. Do you see the good news of the gospel? Can you feel the love with which our God loves us? More importantly, do you believe this in your heart of hearts? Do you believe this truth? Is God's love for you real to you? Writing about this passage, the great 19th century theologian and pastor J.C. Ryle says this. He says, there was good in the tidings as well as seeming evil, sweet as well as bitter, life as well as death, the resurrection as well as the cross. But it was all darkness to the bewildered twelve. Their minds were still full of their mistaken ideas of their master's reign upon earth. We see Jesus' announcement, but how would the disciples respond to this? This is all good news. This is amazing news that God would plan to save us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is amazing. What we see in verse 32, they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. What is the disciples' reaction to all this? Well, Jesus makes this beautiful announcement, but the disciples just don't understand. They don't get it. And not only do they fail to understand, but they also remain fearful to ask Jesus to even explain it. When you read this whole chapter, when, if you just go home and read Mark chapter 9 as a whole, it's really quite striking that the disciples would fail to understand here. Even after the transfiguration at the beginning of this chapter, they continue in ignorance. In Matthew's account of this same interaction we read that the disciples heard that Jesus would die and be resurrected. And Matthew reports that they were exceedingly distressed. You could say it another way. They were extremely sorry that Jesus would mention this. What we learn from the disciples' reaction is that they did not understand why it was necessary for Jesus to die. We've seen all along the way in Mark's gospel, haven't we? We've seen all along the way that the disciples and that most of Israel expected the Messiah to be a great political leader. A great political leader who would usher in this political upheaval that would put Israel back at the top of world power. That's what they were expecting. Now, have you ever asked yourself, what would life be like if Jesus was only a political savior? What if Jesus did what everyone had expected him to do? What if Jesus was what everyone expected him to be? What if he really did just come to earth? Politics are kind of crazy sometimes. What if he made all that go away? Our world would be better, amen? He fixed politics once and for all, praise God. He he would overthrow Rome. He would usher in a worldly kingdom where he was the king You know, it's an interesting thought exercise, but lest we forget, if Jesus merely served as a political savior, then our sin would not be dealt with, would it? 
You see the disciples and the rest of the, the nation of Israel, they believed this lie. They believed this lie that their greatest need was political rescue and not spiritual salvation. They thought that their biggest problem was physical, but their biggest problem wasn't physical, it was spiritual. Of course, we can fall into the same trap, can't we? We can believe that our biggest problem is how we're going to make this month's mortgage or rent. We can believe that our biggest problem right now is just how we're going to make it through this semester of school. If I could just get to June, my biggest problem right now is if I could just get to June, I'll be all right. We can believe that our biggest problem is the potential for World War III. We can believe that our biggest problem is an ever-degrading economy. And you see, when we believe, get this, when we believe that our biggest problem is physical, we will then desire that Jesus would be the Savior that we think we need. Instead of seeing Jesus as our spiritual Savior, we will long to see Jesus as our economic Savior or our academic Savior. We don't see him for who he really is, a spiritual Savior. Just like the disciples, we can fall into the temptation to just only look to Jesus when we want our worldly problems to be solved. But we can neglect the fact that our biggest problem is the problem that he's already dealt with on the cross. Jesus tells the disciples how he's going to solve the world's biggest problem. And rather than responding in gratitude, they respond in ignorance. You see, the disciples understood just enough to be afraid to ask to understand more. The disciples knew just enough that they were afraid to ask to understand any more. Are we like that? How do you see Jesus this morning? Who is Jesus to you? I fear for the Christian church in America that Jesus, for so many people, is a mere addition to an already pretty good life. That rather than being Lord of all, rather than being Lord of our checking account, rather than being Lord of our calendar, rather than being Lord of our family, rather than being Lord of school, rather than being Lord of our relationship, that he's just something nice that we do once a week. We show up. There's great people here that look like me. There's donuts in the lobby. There's coffee. There's good music. He's a good addition to my otherwise good life. Is that how we view Jesus? Or is Jesus your Lord? If Jesus is your Lord, then your life will look fundamentally different than the world around you. If Jesus is your Lord, then your calendar, your checking account, your relationships, your family, your school, all of those things will be fundamentally changed forever. Who is Jesus to you? These first few verses contain this beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. But they also contain a tragic misunderstanding of the Messiah's message. And then ever so suddenly, our gospel author moves to the next scene. Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him 
into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. We see in this second scene of our story, the disciples arguing over greatness. Disciples argue over greatness. Mark seems to just switch gears here. He follows Jesus and his disciples to Capernaum, and this second scene has two parts just like the last. We see the disciples' foolishness, and we see Christ's meekness. Let's look at the disciples' foolishness real, real quickly. This is a different scene, but Jesus asks about their journey that had happened in these prior verses. Jesus is going up. They came to Capernaum. Jesus asked the question, hey, hey guys, uh, what were you talking about along the way? Well, you, I heard you guys arguing. What were you guys arguing about? Let me just ask you, have you ever been absolutely caught red-handed for something? Judging from your silence, I would say probably all of you have. We all have been there, right? We are just caught red-handed. It's like someone has us in their sights and we are just, you know, there's no hope for us in that moment. Like if someone ever asks you the question that seems so pointed that you think to yourself, like they, they know something. They got information from someone else and they, they know. I'm sure this is probably what the disciples felt like in that moment. You see, they knew what they were arguing about. And when Jesus asks them, you know that Jesus knew what they were arguing about. Jesus wasn't asking this question in order to gather information. You see, in case you didn't know, Jesus knows everything. He's God. No, he asked this question in, in order to take an opportunity to teach them, in order to start a conversation. And naturally, the disciples were silent. Have you ever thought about the sort of personal, relational dynamic of the disciples? There's 12 of them. Have you ever been a group of 12 people? If Jesus asks a really hard question, it's very easy to just say, there is a 1 in 12 chance that I'm going to be the one who answers this. So chances are I'm probably good. If I just keep quiet long enough, I'll be good. I won't have to answer this. So you can sort of envision yourself there in this moment when Jesus says, hey, what were you guys talking about along the way? The disciples are just kind of like, you want to, do, you want to take this one? I took the last one. Peter's like, hey, Jesus called me Satan last time, so y'all can take this one, okay? <laughs> Naturally, the disciples were silent. Why were they silent? Because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. I can just sort of imagine Jesus ahead of them walking back to Capernaum, and the disciples are sort of all in the back, kicking it together, talking about like, oh, I'm, I'm the greatest, Right? Now, let's remember in the previous chapter that Jesus told them what? That he would be killed, that he would be raised to life. Not only that, but they had seen Jesus do miracles, right? They had seen him bring back hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind, life to the dead. They had just seen the transfiguration. And then Jesus had just taught them again that he would dying and be delivered over into the hands of men, but three days later he would rise from the dead. I mean, who does that? That's an incredibly great person. In the midst of all of that greatness about Jesus, the disciples, what are they concerned with? Well, I wonder, which one of us is the greatest? Jesus, he's good. He's good. But which one of us matters the most? Now, when I read this, I thought about what I might do in that situation. What would you do? If you were in that situation, if you were one of the 12 there, what would you do in that situation? You see, if it were me, 
I wouldn't be having the argument, right? I wouldn't be asking the question. No, I would look at my fellow disciples and I would tell them how silly this argument is. Guys, this is a ridiculous argument. I would explain to them how crazy they were, how ridiculous the question even is. I would implore them and ask them why they would even be arguing about such a thing. I would tell them that the entire debate is absolutely meaningless. And it's meaningless for one reason, and that one reason is the simple fact that clearly I am the greatest. You see? Why should we be arguing about something when the answer is so clear? And that's what I would do. Why even have this discussion? Why, why have an argument? There's no argument needed. I'm the best. Don't you see? Like, you, you can't see me? You can't see how much Jesus loves me more than all of you guys? You can't see how great I am? I'm the greatest. I think part of me is joking when I say that, but part of me is serious, right? We all struggle with pride. I struggle with pride despite the fact that I really have absolutely nothing for which I can be prideful. But isn't that true of all of us? Don't we look at the disciples here and we see their fallen condition and it reveals our own fallen condition? You see, we too, when confronted with the clearest picture of a holy and a perfect God so often think that we are somehow on his level. One commentator wrote this. He said, it is an awful fact, whether we allow it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. How will Jesus respond to such foolishness? How will Jesus speak to those who are so full of pride? Beautifully, Jesus responds with meekness, doesn't he? In verse 36, Jesus sits down to teach. This is how the rabbis taught in that day. The rabbi or the teacher of the synagogue would sit down to teach and the people would sit around him to listen. Jesus is seated like a rabbi, but his message is far different than theirs. Jesus, with compassion, takes up a child They're back in Capernaum, they're in Peter's hometown, perhaps they're in Peter's house, and perhaps Jesus picks up Peter's son, and he tells the disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, the ambition to be great was pervasive in the religion during this time. First century Palestine was far different than 21st century Cincinnati. You see, society was really much different. Society was somewhat of a caste system. You were most likely locked into one level of society the very day that you were born. If you had money, then maybe you could move up and down the social ladder just a bit. But for the most part, once you were born, you were stuck where you were. In one religious Jewish community, every individual, get this, every individual's rank 
was reevaluated every single year, and your rank would determine where you got to sit at church on Sundays. It would determine when you got to speak or if you got to speak. It determined everything about you. You see, we can look at the disciples and sort of wonder, but culturally, this would have been a somewhat appropriate question for the culture. Most Jewish people longed for a different status. They longed for an individual upgrade. And in the midst of a society and a culture where honor, where status, and where position were of the utmost importance, we can understand why the disciples may have asked this question. But their fear to repeat the question to Jesus, right? Their fear to repeat the question was proof that they knew that it was a misplaced desire. You see that? It's culturally acceptable to want to be great, but in the presence of greatness, they knew that it was a misplaced desire. And of course, Jesus did not need them to tell him what they had been talking about along the way. Remember, Jesus knows everything. Notice, despite the fact that none of the disciples ever answered Jesus, that Jesus answers their question regardless. And his answer would have been completely radical at that time. You see, children had no status in the first century. When you talk about living in sort of a caste system where you're trying to climb a societal, cultural ladder, children sort of drug you down. They weren't seen in that time like we see them today, where children are sometimes the center of a household. No, children at that time were really responsible for taking more than they could give. They couldn't help you climb the ladder at all. And so to embrace and to love a child was to care for someone else without any expectation of reciprocation. You see that? That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is calling his disciples to love a child, to receive a child, to love someone when there would be no expectation of reciprocation. But this is what Jesus calls his followers to do. Christians ought to serve and receive people who are socially unimportant. Those who may not upgrade our social standing. Those who might not be the number one overall draft pick into the people of Christ, into the church. Why? Because Jesus came to save those people. Every single verse of this passage reveals some facet of the gospel message to us. Do you see that? We've seen the beauty of each individual verse, like seeing the, the beauty of each individual piece of the puzzle, but how does it all fit together? How do you put these pieces together and make sense of all of this? What I want to do in our final few minutes is just take a step back and to see what Mark was doing. We've taken all these small puzzle pieces, we've put them together one by one, but I want us here at the end to see the main point of this passage. What is the main point of all of this? I want us to look at the proverbial picture on the box. We have two seemingly unrelated scenes, right? Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. And then Jesus tells his disciples that true greatness is found in being a servant, See where I'm going? The question becomes, how are these two passages related? What is Mark teaching us here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? These two passages 
seem unrelated until you realize that the first is an example of the second. Do you see that? The first part is an example of the teaching of the second. The truest picture of a humble servant is seen in the cross. Jesus tells us that whoever wants to be the greatest will have to humble themselves to become the least. Whoever desires to be first will have to be last. Whoever longs for prominence must become a servant. And if this is true, church, then we have to ask, is there one more humble than Jesus? Is there any greater picture of humility than the Son of God taking on flesh and condescending to dwell among those creatures that He created? Is there any greater humility than humbling oneself to the point of death and that death on the cross? True greatness is humble. Those who desire greatness must be last of all and servant of all. Church, is there any greater servant than the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark will tell us in the next chapter that the Son of Man came not to be served, but He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Is there any greater servant than the one who removed the sandals from the feet of those that He created to wash His disciples' feet? Is there any greater servant than the one whom the prophet Isaiah calls the suffering servant? The one who is despised and rejected by men and acquainted with grief. One who is not esteemed by mankind. A servant who bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. One who is smitten by God and afflicted. A servant who is crushed for our iniquities, oppressed and afflicted for our sake. Is there any greater example of a loving servant than the crucified Christ? Jesus, with a tender child in his arms, said to us, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The church, do you see the puzzle coming together? You see the picture? It is in the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus receives us, his children. Do you see that? Whoever receives a child like this in my name receives, not me, but the one who sent me. We are to receive those who have nothing to offer us because it was Jesus who received us when we had nothing to offer him. And now the pieces of the puzzle are complete and we can see the entire picture, the main point that true greatness is found in serving others and the greatest service of all is seen in the cross of Christ. Let's pray.